Rock Bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, situation, situation. Uh, how, how's it going, y'all? Shit shows. Uh, for anybody who's new, who may be wondering, what the hell is an adult child? Well, an adult child is somebody who grew up in a dysfunctional family whose childhood, the impact of their childhood is negatively impacting their lives as an adult. And this is a term that everyone needs to know. A lot of people think that the term only applies to those who grew up in an alcoholic family, but that's not the case. There are a ton of different types of dysfunctional families and different types of abuse and neglect and trauma that can produce an adult child. So if you're wondering... If you're one and you've managed to wind up here <laughs> somehow, uh, you're an adult child. I'm pretty confident. But here's the good thing. There's nothing shameful or embarrassing about growing up in a dysfunctional family. And the even better thing is that healing and recovery is possible. And the even better, better thing is how powerful and transformational this work is. Doing this work has allowed me to find my true self and live accordingly. And that's such a blessing. And so we talk about all sorts of shit here. Trauma, codependency, addiction, carbs, cheese, and condiments. So if you're interested in any of that shit, oh, and we curse. We, we also use profanity. So you've been warned, okay? So today, uh, I'm diving deep with Arlena Allen. So she is the host of the podcast One Day at a Time. She is a women's recovery coach, and she is 20, 28 years sober, and she's done a shitload of work on herself. But first, a few things. Number one, story time. So I am in LA. I flew to LA today. And this morning, as I was going through security, I got a notification that my flight was three and a half hours delay. And so I sit there for another hour and a half, and then I get another notification that it's been delayed an additional two hours. And uh, at that point, I just, I ended up saying, screw it, because I didn't want to have to get stuck in Atlanta for the night. So I said, screw it, and I, I got a, I booked a flight on a different airline. Um, and so... I, on the second flight, about an hour before we landed, I started chatting to the, to the gal that was sitting next to me. It turns out that she is a, a therapist who specializes in trauma, in complex trauma, in relational trauma. What do you know? <laughs> and when she said that, I was like, oh, okay, I get this. We were supposed to meet. I understand why my flight was delayed. Sorry to the, all the other people who were on that Atlanta flight, on that first flight, uh, who had to be delayed for like eight hours. 
just because I was supposed to <laughs> because I was supposed to meet this woman on the other flight. So I, I'm sorry for anyone who's inconvenienced by that. Um, yeah, so I'm going to have her on the podcast. And the other thing, too, is that she grew up or she didn't grow up. She um went to college at Brimar College. And I grew up in Brimar. I literally Brimar College was essentially my backyard. So, yeah, the universe is always work- working, folks. We were always exactly where we are supposed to be. Next, let's talk about why you need to damn the join Patreon. So this is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups with a bunch of fine-ass shit shows. And this is an amazing community that you should be a part of. Like these people, I want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Shit Show Nation. Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you to Laura, Courtney, Christopher, Rebecca, Jess, Liz, Danny, Holly, Natalie, Paul, Christopher, Tom, and John. Look at that. We got three dudes at the the end. Um, There was a point in time where there would only be like one dude in the meeting. But now we got a pretty solid dude tribe. So how about you guys do what these, you know, clearly intelligent, wonderful, amazing specimens did and head to patreon.com slash adult child. Do it now. Next, how about you give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at adult child pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five star rating on Apple, on Spotify. It's a requirement here. Thanks. Love you all. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. It is my pleasure to introduce Arlena Allen. She's the host of the One Day at a Time pod, uh, podcast, and she's also a recovery coach. And we've just been sitting here chatting for too long and not <laughs> recording. <laughs> so I'm like, anything earth shattering? Yeah, no, nothing earth shattering. Hi, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I was so looking forward to this. You're mm-hmm. hilarious. I was like, oh, she's like my sister from another mister. <laughs> so I just shared with her um, the laundry list. Do mm. tell. Did you shit uh, your pants? Uh, my God. Um, <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, yeah, I, I read through it and I was like, check, check, check. There was only like a couple that didn't really resonate, but. Which one um, resonated the most? Do you Ooh, want to I, don't, 
I have I have to look at the list. I can pull it up real quick. But um, yeah, so so much of it was like check check. That's totally me. Yeah, and so my husband is actually his his dad was the alcoholic, and his dad got sober before he was born. Oh wow! So I was like, oh, I, I read him this list. Okay, so the fourteen traits we became isolated, afraid of people and authority figures. I mean, I relate to the isolating part, which is weird because I'm pretty extroverted. But uh, I do tend to uh, shrivel and crumple like a tin can in front of a, an authority figure that, um, like at work, <laughs> that's where it showed up for me. Crumple. Uh, crumple. It sounded like you said crumple. Crumple like a tin can. Crumple. Girl. Crumple. Like, crumple. <laughs> Not crunk like the kids, the cool kids do. Yeah, no, crumple. Crumple. Yeah. Yeah. Like a tin can. <laughs> yeah, no, crumple. Approval seekers. What? <laughs> I feel so called out uh, and lost our identity in the process. Yes. Three, we are frightened by angry people. Any per- personal criticism? Ooh, that's rough for me. The personal criticism. Does that get you uh, being a public figure as a podcast host? You know, you told me about yes, the boob thing. Yeah. The bo- yeah. Yes and no. <laughs> just um, Oh, I didn't tell you this and you probably didn't. So I had somebody leave me a review um, and it said um, the pod, uh, the podcast was rated E, which means for everyone. And yet it was riddled with language. And I was like, lady, it stands for explicit. (laughs) (laughs) Miscommunication there. Yeah. So the the criticism I get is like, um, it was about the cursing, which is fine. Sometimes it does get to me. The one time it got to me was like when somebody left me a review and said that um, that I was being disrespectful to my guest. And that really mm. bothered me because I don't think I'm ever, you know, but yeah. I would say generally speak like the boob comment, like that didn't bother me. For anybody who didn't silly. know, there was a, yeah. I mean, I posted this video and there was like, she was like literally making it seem like I posted a video like in a bikini and it was like literally like you you know would maybe take a um uh binoculars to to see that i had boobs so i thought that, that was a little ridiculous <laughs> i was going to submit a comment saying i don't think you show enough boob <laughs> somebody, was, somebody wrote a comment that was like how dare you have boobs <laughs> how dare you have them <laughs> yeah and her name was mo baby that was the name of the account i wanted to be like mo baby there's gonna ne- there needs to be more mo booby for this comment to be justified seriously that is funny <laughs> um is funny so what about the abandonment stuff well i, I think my abandonment is oh is that on the list mm-hmm. just sc- re- read through the rest of them and just tell me I'm what's old. Going, like really remember okay what uh so, blows your um, mind Okay, we either become alcoholics or yes. marry them or both or find other com- compulsive personalities such as workaholic to fulfill our sick abandonment needs. Man, that's like punch after punch. So yes, became alcoholic. Yes, married. Well, my husband was five years sober when I met him. Um, Find other compulsive personalities such as workaholic. Check. I've never had fewer than two jobs my entire really? life. Yeah. I'm I'm half Mexican. I don't know if that's anything to do with it. <laughs> Always working. Um 
to fulfill our sick abandonment needs. Now, I didn't realize that workaholism was self-abandonment, but it totally is. Mm. Like I've been like toying with this idea. Oh, I'm a workaholic. I need to, maybe I should do something about that. But no. Um, but yeah, so the self-abandonment, you know, I can trace that all the way back to when I was a little kid to the times when I had really big feelings as a little kid. My mom, bless her heart, didn't know what to do with me. So she would put me in my room. It's like, go have your moment. You know, so yeah. So it, it started out, my abandonment was at the antidote to big feelings, you know, from my, from my mom. And then I learned to do it to myself. Mm. And so that's been like a reoccurring theme in my life is self-abandonment, you know, or self-judgment. Like when I'm having a feeling, my knee-jerk response is anger because that's what I learned. Like when somebody has a big feeling, anger is an appropriate response. You just shut that shit down. (laughs) When you have a big feeling or when somebody else has a big feeling? Both. Okay. Both. But especially like I think I'm thinking of my uh, youngest son who's 19 um, he is the most like me and he has really big feelings. And so, you know, I'm sober. I, you know, I was sober before I had kids. And so I would, you know, try to deploy these uh, other like healthier emotional strategies, emotion management stuff with my son. But when that didn't work, I resorted to anger. You know, like I would get, and sometimes it felt like a a safety thing for him Mm. because he would spin out of control. Like every once in a while, it was almost like, um, it was almost like the ebb and flow of his personality that occasionally he would just like have these big emotional outbursts, blow ups that, and, and he would just be so dysregulated. He couldn't like gain control. And it was almost like he had to like spin all the way out and dissipate on his own, but I would, it would trigger a response and an anger response in me. Like I would be frightened by it. And so I would deploy anger as a way to, to shut it down. And I noticed that I do that with myself. When did you have that um, recognition or acknowledgement that that's what you were doing with him? pretty early on and recognition doesn't always equate to a change in behavior Mm -hmm. as we know. So there was a lot of practicing and, you know, I have mixed feelings about like, if I reflect back on those experiences, there is a mixture of self-compassion and shame. (laughs) Like, God damn. It's like, even after all the work I did, it's very difficult to regulate emotionally, um, even if you know what's going on. Like there is this idea in recovery rooms that um, self-knowledge of it tells us nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's the missing piece, I think, was the somatic healing. Like it's a physical, it's a visceral response in my body that when I'm really afraid for my son, that... I become dysregulated. And so I have a husband who is also in recovery and we understand how things work emotionally. And so, you know, we were like this team, like one of us would tap out and be like, I'd be like, I, I, I can't be present for this. And he would step in and whoever was saner and calmer at the moment would be able to. So thank God 
you know, we did this in partnership, raising kids in partnership. I really feel for people who have to do it by themselves because it's hard enough when you're, you know, in a, when you, when you're a team, Mm -hmm. it's hard to do it. So, yeah, but you know, I do the best that I can. And it, it does offer me compassion when I hear stories from other women who, if they feel safe enough with me to share what their parenting experience experiences are, I can be like, yeah, I, me too. I get it. It's hard. Were you somebody, you know, what a common experience that I hear is that it is through raising kids that a lot of, um, awarenesses come up as far as the way that they were raised Mm -hmm. or that a lot of unresolved childhood shit comes to the surface as a result of having kids. Was that your experience? Oh my God. On so many levels. Like I was sexually abused by a neighbor when I was about five and I looked at my son, you know, when I had my first son and he, you know, he's turning five, I would look at him and go, Oh my God, he's a baby. I was a baby when that was going on, you know? Um, and how fundamentally it changed who I was and the trajectory, it changed the trajectory of my life. You know, and now I can be grateful for the woman that I am because I know I can survive things, but it was very triggering looking at him. And then in my sobriety, I was probably between eight and 10. I've never been able to really pinpoint how old I was when I had my first drink. But also when my, when my son turned was about that age, I would look at him and go, when I was that age, I felt the need to drink and it mm. gave me relief. Like I didn't realize how bad I felt until I felt good. Like that first drink was like the self-consciousness, the self-loathing, all that, all the negative self-identity stuff that I had was lifted And the juxtaposition between those two experiences was so profound. It like was burned in my psyche forever. Right. And I've continued to, I used to say, oh, I chased that feeling until I got sober, but bitch, let's be real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, who doesn't love to feel those moments of peace and awe and mm. bliss? And, and, and so I've been able to cultivate, identify the feelings I want to feel and learn how to cultivate those without drugs and alcohol or workaholism or whatever else I like to do. So let's talk about your childhood. Okay. So Um, you mentioned the uh, siblings. I have an older sister. She's almost two years older than me. And then I have a younger stepbrother that's five years younger than me. And we let me ask you this. Uh Was there a point in your life where the way that you viewed your childhood shifted dramatically? After I got sober, I started to see my childhood through this lens of compassion for one, like, oh my God, I survived so much. And let me, can I just preface that neither of my parents uh, drank or did drugs or anything like that, but uh, I'm sure that there was (laughs) other types of dysfunction. Yes. Yeah. Um, my, I was raised primarily by my mother. Were my your parents, parents divorced? They they were divorced by the time I was seven. So sexual abuse and divorce by the time I was seven. And my mother did not teach me. She didn't have coping skills to teach me, right? The coping skills she taught me were along the lines of anger 
workaholism. Are you seeing a reoccurring thing there? <laughs> uh, abandonment. Like, it, like she would rage. It's so funny. Like when I describe my young, my mom as her younger self to my husband or my children, they cannot reconcile the woman that she mm. like, they're like, like I used to tell him, I go, you know, that sweet little old lady who comes here to visit you. That is not the bitch that raised me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, and uh, listen, so I just have to also say that she was an amazing woman and she changed over the years too. She evolved and changed. And um, so she was a different person at the end of her life than she was at the beginning of her life. But there was a lot of regret, disappointment, anger that she wasn't that sweet, nurturing mom that I wanted her to be when I was Mm -hmm. little. Mm -hmm. She wasn't that woman. She was like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get your shit together and, you know, handle your business. (laughs) You know, did she know that you had been abused? Okay. So this is, this is where it gets weird. Uh, she walked in on it one time. It was a a neighbor. neighbor, It was a neighbor child that, that was abusing me. And my How mom, much older was the child, the other kid, uh, four years. So I was five and they were nine and it clearly had been done to them or how else would they know how to do it? Yes. You and I know that now, but that didn't occur to me till after oh, I had been course. sober for an extended period of time. But when my mom saw it happening, she lost her goddamn mind. And what I internalized was that I was bad. Mm-hmm. Like I was bad and um, I've learned a lot about childhood sexual abuse and what happens to the the child that experiences it. There's often a lot of shame and guilt and there's a lot of uh, around how the body responds to stimulation. Right. And I didn't. So I thought I was bad because my body was responding to things. Mm. Right. And so I had so much guilt and shame and, and thought I was a bad person And so this is really, it was a great question because this fundamentally speaks to who I am today, which is I'm in a helping profession, but uh, my mother witnessed it in my childlike mind. I perceived her response as she hated me. Mm. And then fast forward to when I was about 14 years old, my older sister was suffering from depression. Like, I don't know if she was suicidal, but I knew, I knew that my mother was scared that we were, that we might lose her is what she told me. She came to me like she'd never done this before. My mother was not a vulnerable person. Um, she was either really happy or really pissed, but she was never vulnerable. Uh, and, but she came to me one time and said, we have to help your sister. Uh, we need to stay close to her. Which like, she laid, like laid out this plan. And in my mind, I was like, I think subconsciously I thought if I could save my sister, then my mom will love me. Mm. And my whole life, I didn't realize until my mom died a year ago that my whole life was built around trying to make my mom proud. And, um, and so that was, that's kind of what set the stage for the rest of my life is the abuse, the divorce, trying to prove myself to mom. So like this overachiever, mentality, workaholism, not good enough, self-abandonment, like that was sort of, these are sort of like trying to rescue people. Um, those have been like the themes of my life. And even recently after 20 years of recovery, 
I'm in a helping profession and I had like a reoccurring experience where someone comes to me for help and I overwhelm them with resources. Mm -hmm. Um, I know to pace that out and, you know, spoon feed as people need it. But I had a a few experiences. Have you ever had someone reach out to you to be on the podcast and then you quickly realize they haven't done their work or (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like, I, I can sniff that out in two seconds. And this guy was like, oh, I want to come on your podcast, talk about this book I wrote about how to beat alcohol mm. through this step-down process. But he's like, but I just want to disclose, I haven't stopped drinking yet. <laughs> so I was like. So it's oh, working. It's really, so it works really well, dude. Oh, dear. <laughs> it works so well that he didn't need to stop. He wrote a whole book on it. And here's the self-knowledge. His thing was... um, There needs to be something for people who want to do it on their own. And I was like, oh, sweetheart, you are displaying classic childhood abandonment issues. Like you were forced to deal with your shit on your own by yourself. And so now as an adult, you don't know, you haven't learned who to trust because you couldn't trust the adults in your, in your, in your life when you were a child Mm -hmm. and you learned to do things on your own. And now you don't feel like you can you know, trust other people because the people you've been trusting are familiar, but like your parents. And so you've learned to trust untrustworthy people. So it's this whole like self-fulfilling prophecy. Did you call him out on the fact that he said, what did you, what did you say to him when he said, I feel drinking? So I was, I brought this up because I was so triggered. I was like, well, thank you for thank you for reaching out. Bless your heart. But I was like, (laughs) um, I'm not, I wouldn't feel comfortable you know, inviting you to be a guest if you have not been able to solve this problem. And oh, by the way, if you would like some support, I could introduce you to some people. But it was like throwing, I know not to offer help to people who don't want it because it's like throwing pebbles against armor. There's just really no. I mean, he he wrote a book though. I mean, he doesn't need your help. (laughs) Yeah, no, he does not. No, he doesn't want it. He needs it, but he don't want it, which is a whole, an entire, it was a whole other enchilada. Did he get defensive? I did not. Uh, he explained, it was so interesting is he presented, he was British, so he didn't get offended. <laughs> you know, they're so polite. Um, he restated his position for needing to do things on his own and the problems with the current solutions. And all I saw, it was like a neon sign was limiting beliefs, Mm. childhood trauma. And so I just kind of let it go. I was like, please hear this with all the love and compassion that email does not offer that there is help available and there are people that you can trust. And if you would, you want to further this conversation, I'm available. Crickets. Crickets. Not interested. He came back again with some more limiting beliefs and was like, peace out. And I was like, okay, cool. There's, there's, I've learned to not help people who don't want it. It just makes, it just upsets me. And that's sort of, you know, circling back to where my point was, is, is I realized in this helping profession, I can't save anybody. I don't know what's right for anybody else, honestly. Mm -hmm. So when did drinking become a big problem for you? You're like eight Um, I I was a binge drinker. So, you know, it started early. The drinking started early and it's, it was 
starting to become problematic very early on. Um, I lost. You mentioned baby. eight to ten years old. What were the? What do you know? What the circumstances were when you drank oh, yeah. the first time? Yeah, my mom had gone out to dinner, and my sister and I were left home alone. And I thought it would be a great idea. I don't even know where the idea came from. It was so bizarre, but you know that I remember. I remember my first drink vividly because it, the alcohol burned my lips. It burned all the way down. But when it hit bottom, that warmth spread through my whole body and those negative feelings were lifted. And I was like, this is it. This is the thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I was numb. I remember feeling numb. I remember falling on the, you know, Mexican tile floor. And I remember like I threw up all over the place. This is my first drunk. I threw up all over the place. My sister cleaned me up and put me to bed. And she didn't tell my mom. And years later, I found out it was because she thought she would get in trouble. Well, so she was an older sister. Yeah, it kind of speaks yeah. to the idea of how responsibility was in our household. You were responsible for others, but you weren't responsible for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so tell me about your drinking. So then the problems escalated <laughs> as they do. Uh, blacking out was a very common occurrence for me. Uh, vomiting was a very common occurrence. I used to joke around that if I didn't have splash marks on my shoes the next morning, it wasn't a good time. <laughs> <laughs> like I had no problem. Like there used to be these t-shirts that said, uh, I drink, I get drunk, I fall down. No problem. And that was, that was me. I, I identified as the party girl. Um, but it, it led me to this very dark place of, so men, the, an addiction to like love was, and it's not the true sense of love, but it was external validation is what it was. It was like, I was looking for someone to come rescue me, the knight in shining armor. And I probably met a few, but he was like, that bitch is too drunk. (laughs) So pass. Apparently that's not uh, attractive. Um, but it was like a recurring thing of, I would black out, put myself in dangerous situations, uh, driving drunk. I never got a DUI. I was dating a DUI cop who was married, by the way. That, that was marriage was not a uh, obstacle for me at the time. Um, it is now. I mean, the only married man I sleep with now is my husband, and he, which he appreciates. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so fights with friends, like arguments. I- I'm small, so I never got into like physical fights with people, but, uh, you know, trouble. I always worked, but I would occasionally have to vomit on the way to work or run to the bathroom to get sick because I was so hungover. <clears throat> I would vomit so much the next day. I had what's called petechia, the little red blood vessels that burst on your eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was fun. Um, just... I had what I would call these episodes where I drink and I wouldn't know who was going to come out. It was typically either I had these two alter egos. It was either wimpy Wendy or badass Betsy. Cause I was either fighting or crying <laughs> later. Uh, I discovered a third alter ego, which was slutty Susan. <laughs> and she always joined the party at some point, you know, sometimes all three, it was like a party of one. <laughs> Me, myself and that my crazy bitches were having a good time and not having a time so this is like went on till I was like 25 and I think the weird thing is that I was like super ambitious I like wanted better for my life so I was always, I was lived I had this terrible night with my sister which what I would consider my bottom 
I had no friends left. I burned out, burned my bridges and I was left to going out with my sister. She and I started and ended kind of the same, you know, together. And, um, did she have issues with alcohol? No, 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 she did not. She was the compliant good child. Mm-hmm. I was not. <laughs> um, but, uh, my bottom happened two years before I got sober. She and I went out, I got really drunk. Mayhem ensued. And the next morning she had to tell me what happened because I couldn't remember. So it was not an uncommon experience for me to hear about the night before secondhand information. And I had that sickening, sinking feeling um, that something terrible had gone on the night before. And she told me and it was horrible. And then she said that she was going to go to Al-Anon. And I was like, for me? (laughs) But you were, if you knew what Al-Anon was. I, so when I was 14 years old, my mom dated a guy that was in AA. So we had sort of like this preliminary exposure to AA, which was kind of interesting. Um, actually funny story. I went to be, this guy, Al was, was the guy that my mom dated and he took us all. Al the alcoholic. Uh Uh-huh. How funny is that? Um, he took us to a picnic, an AA picnic and, um, this guy, he was like this main speaker. He gets up and he's telling this story about how he had this dog and a bird named Petey and he would feed the bird alcohol and the bird Petey would chase this dog around. It was a hilarious story. Everyone thought it was funny, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to when I finally go to my first uh, meeting, um, this guy is a speaker and he's telling this story about a dog and the bird that drank with him and, Ch- and Petey. And the- I was like, does this guy speak all the meanings? Like, what is happening here? <laughs> it was so weird. Like, this guy ain't got any other stories? <laughs> I know, right? But I was like, is this, is this the way, is this, are these, all- like, is this how the meetings go? This guy speaks and then In every single damn meeting. Yeah. I was like, I got to so hear confused. about Petey every time. And girl, I'm talking, this was 11 years later because I was 14 years old at the time. And I think it's over till I was 25. So it was a long, I was like, what is happening? Anyway, total random. Where was I going with this? Um, your sister said that she was going to start going to Al-Anon. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I was offended because I was like, for me, like, I thought that was You're like, for Al, mom hasn't been dating him for a long time. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, it was clearly for me. And it was so funny because when I showed up to the meetings, I was so self-centered, but incapable of self-examination. And it kind of speaks to that idea that you can't read the label from inside the jar. Mm-hmm. Like I had no awareness of my outside, like how people were perceiving me. I was just, you know, living in this uh, delusional world and I didn't even know it. I was in denial, delusional and in denial. I didn't even know it. So it took me two years of wrestling with the ideas of, am I an alcoholic? What makes somebody an alcoholic? What about all the people? That Did you start around? going to meetings right away? No, it took, no. took me okay. two years, okay. two years before I uh, set foot in a meeting. Um, I lived in the self-help section of Barnes and Noble. I was trying to figure it out. There's a reason that figured out is not a slogan, right? Like, because it is important to have people around you who can offer suggestions and demonstrate behavior. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't having any, I didn't have no, any community. So yeah. So it took me two years of reading all the books, shooting all the angles and trying to do it my way before I was like, okay, I'm done. And um, the way I showed up to a meeting was two of, I was in sales and two of my clients were in the program and Mitch and Randy 
and Mitch was like, he would, he took me to my very first meeting. Randy was the guy that was kind of telling me things like if, if you don't take the first drink, you can't get drunk or, um, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And, um, you know, they were fine, upstanding men of the program and they quickly turned me over to the women. Like Mitch took me to my first meeting. He's like, you gotta try to exchange, get numbers and, and start calling some of the women and, you know, do that. So they, they turned me over pretty quickly. So I was super grateful, but that's how I, how I showed up, but it was the underlying feelings were desperation, self-hatred, self-loathing, feeling lost, confusion, and just desperate for a change. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when they told me I had to change everything, I was like, okay, (laughs) please was, um, did you have a, a bit of a pink cloud at all in the beginning or no? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, they, I went to my first meeting and they're all welcome home. And I was like, oh my God. And then I started hearing people talk and I was like, these are my people. I knew it immediately. I really did. Well, maybe not immediately. Maybe, maybe that's revisionist history, but I kept going to the meetings and found my people very quickly, found my girls. Yeah. I was going to say, did you get like, then were there many young people in the program at the time? Um, so I had to find the, the meetings with the young people. So I kept hearing about this meeting. They called it Saturday night live. And they were like, Oh, there's a lot of chaos, a lot of drama. And I was like, "Uh, can I have directions (laughs) to this chaos and drama, um, in San Jose? Uh Yeah. So I did all the, so I went to the young people's meetings and I was checking out the dudes and I would dress up to go to meetings and I was terrified of the women. And they were like, oh, you should go to women's meetings. And I was like, no, thank you. Cause I was so accustomed to receiving all my external validation from men that women were terrifying, but, mm-hmm. but they said I had to get a woman sponsor. So I was like, okay, here we go. And I, you know, would pray about it. And this woman remembered my name the second time she met me and it was as if the clouds had parted and the sun was shining. It was like, Oh, this is your bitch. <laughs> this is her. And, um, and you know how I asked her to be my sponsor is I kept hearing that people were doing steps one, two, and three and relapsing. And I was like, hell no, I am not doing that. And so I, I asked this woman, I said, would you, would you listen to my inventory? And you know what she said to me? She said, I would be honored, but we're going to start with step one. And that was the beginning. And that was 28 years ago. And I never had to relapse after that. And it's been an amazing ride. Like some shit has happened, but I stayed sober through it all. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. How are you, are you in contact with anybody that you got sober with? Oh yeah. I'm still in contact with the, that particular gal. Her name's Kimmers. I still, I still, she's still in my circle. Yeah. I'm so grateful for zoom meetings because I can still see people from, from home. Mm-hmm. I moved away from my community three years ago and I knew it was going to be hard. You hear about moving in sobriety is really hard. That is, it is. a fact. It that is. is you did it too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's so different when you're new somewhere, but you're not a newcomer, mm-hmm. you know, especially in San Francisco, because it was like, everybody was so fucking busy. 
Yeah. And I was like trying to make friends and they're like, I can hang out with you. Not this Sunday, but following Sunday. I'm like, wow, I'll have friends in like five years at this point. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So your thing is uh, your big soapbox is what self-esteem. It is. Yeah. It's self-esteem, but, um, really working, working with the subconscious mind. Like I started really getting into neuroscience, you know, several years ago, and there's some really good podcasts out now that talk about neuroscience. The Huberman lab podcast is really interesting. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of them, but, um, I really became fascinated with dealing with root cause issues because what I was seeing in my community, a couple of things, there were some women who relapsed constantly. Well, people, you know, it's not exclusive to women, no. but there are people who relapse constantly. In my mind, I'm like, I wonder if they just don't even feel good enough to receive the solution. Like, how do we raise the level of their self-esteem so they feel worthy of receiving the solution? And there's a, a couple other ideas that include the default mode network, which is like your brain's operating system. Well, and- what, this is, I'm, I mean, let's, this is called being an adult child. This is called like childhood programming. Right. Default operating system. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, yeah. The term from neuroscience is like, and it's so funny because in recovery, people hear, you hear people talk about playing whack-a-mole like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I was, you know, Mm -hmm. the one character defect settles down and another one pops up. And it's like, yeah, it's the way your brain is operating. Your subconscious mind, it's your brain's job is to protect you. It's, Mm -hmm. It's job is to think. And, you know, we have this negativity bias. We're always looking for, the danger, like that's how mm-hmm. our brains are designed is that's for survival mode. Uh, and some of us never got out of survival mode. And so my thinking is how are we solving the root cause issues? Like I love the 12 steps. They're great for crisis management and design for a living. But what I was seeing is people living with these root cause problems. And so you know, I'm interested in all kinds of, th- I love me some therapy. I've done EMDR, internal family systems, uh, process therapy, CBT, um, yeah, hypnotherapy. Hypnotherapy was really interesting for me. It was actually so effective. I actually got certified to do it. And so now I incorporate that in my coaching practice to help the help release those root cause triggers by doing age regression to the time when those triggers were installed. So I can't remember if you told me it was, it is, is it a particular type of hypnosis that you studied? What did you say it was called again? Did you say it had a type? Uh, I do something called seventh path. Seventh path. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've sort of modified it based off of the 30 years of behavior change that I've studied this whole time. Like it took me a couple of years. I've been studying behavior change for the last 30 years. Right. And so I have incorporated a lot of information into the process. Right. So, um, can you explain what seven path is? Well, what I will say is that it's a phase of, you know, in hypnotherapy, there is the first session is about uh, self-esteem and confidence. And then the next one is the age regression where we go back in time 
uh, and work with the subconscious mind directly to release those triggers mm-hmm. and uh, install new positive. Like you can't really take, we need a sufficient substitute. They teach that. Exactly. You got to take right. something out and put something in. Yeah. You need something in its place. And so it's reframing those experiences with additional information and um, adding additional positive construction, constructive information uh, to allow someone to move forward, right. In a healthier way without triggering old coping survival skills. Um, and then there's a forgiveness process. It's kind of two phase. There's forgiveness of others and then forgiveness of self. And then the last part is parts work. Sometimes we have overdeveloped, um, you know, protectors mm-hmm. inside us. And so the, I love the hypnotherapy because it gets to the subconscious mind very quickly. Like in cognitive behavioral therapy, it could take like 20 sessions before you feel safe enough that your internal process, like whatever you have locked away in your subconscious mind feels safe enough to arise, to be processed to resolution. And hypnotherapy is like the shortcut. And I was so interested to hear about this rapid Resolution. resolution therapy, because it kind of sounds similar to hypnotherapy. And, you know, we, we, we change the labels on certain things, but I think fundamentally it is all about, you know, you do a lot of adult child, like, and you work within that framework. And I like to work within the framework of self-esteem and, but it's all dealing with the subconscious mind, the limiting beliefs, reframing those things and really empowering people to take positive actions. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole this whole adult child journey for me really just reframed how I view my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, and really just to see that it was I mean, we talk about how the alcohol is just a symptom. But mm-hmm. for me, I realized that the alcoholism was just a symptom. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and that it was just um, Isn't you know, that, wait, so what was that? What was that tweak that resonated with you you know they say that alcohol alcoholism is a sign of a deeper problem and then you sort of tweaked it to the alcoholism itself was like what was the difference in that for you Hmm. how do I say this um I guess I viewed it as like the alcoholism was my problem and alcohol was the solution and then I realized that it was kind of you know, what I experienced in childhood, the trauma that I experienced, what I had come into from a, um, a generational like perspective that the out, my alcoholism was a solution to the disease of family dysfunction and complex Mm. PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. So just, just taking care of the alcoholism wasn't sufficient. Like it got me sober. Right. But it wasn't until I really went deeper Mm, that I was really going to be able to live a life of fulfillment. And the one thing I like to say is like, uh, like sobriety, like physical sobriety gave me the, the, the possibility made it possible for me to live a life like a fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. But then uh, the adult child recovery gave me the ability to do so. So the, the adult child stuff was root cause, resolving root cause issue. Absolutely. And it was interesting because yeah. I had Dr. When I had Dr. Drew on the podcast, we were talking about this and he was saying that like, he really does think that we all like, you know, all addicts, 
people in recovery, they do have that stuff. It's just certain people, it's going to be so fucking painful to where they're forced to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And some other people might, they might be okay. They might, all they might need is just, you know, just AA and the 12 steps, but that there's others of us like myself included to where it's like, I was going to fucking die if I didn't go deeper. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's the root cause stuff that, you know, it's childhood trauma, you know, of, of, you know, a multitude, it shows up in a multitude of ways, but yeah, the, CPS, CPPTSD. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh my God. You would think I'd had enough caffeine to be able to speak today, but apparently not. But yeah, it's all, yeah, it's all underneath it all is, is trauma. And that needs to be its core issue, pain that needs to be addressed. So whatever framework and and uh, processes. And so here's the good news. There are so many modalities for healing that are available at little to no cost. Like you don't have to go to therapy. Like there's, but I, I'm like you, I like to do the deep work. And so I, you know, it's that idea of how free do you want to be? Like, I want to be as free as I can be. (laughs) Right. Like I I really want that, that freedom and I want to reach my potential. And so I am aware that I have to resolve these internal barriers and it's really more uh, a process of subtraction than it is addition. I'm not trying to reach some future ideal self any longer. That's an illusion. That becomes another distraction. What I've realized is that it's sort of like Michelangelo talks about there's the David and he just chipped away the marble to reveal what was already there. Mm. Like, um, I had to develop all this armor as a child and walk through life. And now it's about how do I become more vulnerable and how do I lay down my armor to allow who I really am to emerge? So uh, the real future best self, living my best life and all the best, it's already there. It's about laying down the coping strategies and behavior patterns that no longer serve me. And I needed help to do that. Yeah, definitely needed help. Still need help. Yeah. So you've, I mean, you've talked about some of the stuff, like, you know, feeling like you need to help other people in order to get your mother's love. And what were like, what was, um, just share like a a pivotal moment of growth for you in your journey or something that was really hard for you to walk through, or what was a surprising revelation that you had as it relates to beliefs that you held about yourself? I, I don't know why this popped into my mind when you said that it was, I remember being at a meeting and they're like, what did you learn about? What have you learned about yourself since I even sober? And I was like, everything. Uh, I thought I was stupid. Turns out I was just stoned. all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wasn't stupid. I was high. <laughs> I, I, weed is a big part of my story. If I was awake, I was high. Too. Like not but that's when high. my boot, that's when the drinking got, so out of control for me is because like you stop, you know, you stop getting super fucked up when you smoke all day, every day, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I did them both all the time. Like I I was a total binge drinker. My, my drinking was evolved around going out, going out with my girls, man hunting, being, letting them chase me, letting them think they were chasing me is what was happening. It was about just like having this outrageously good time. 
right? It was all, but I didn't recognize it as escapism. I thought I was just having fun. But uh, in, in sobriety, the that whole dynamic that I described around my, what happened to me, my mom and my sister, that was, that came later in recovery. And that was a, I was like, oh, and then things like, um, I used to joke around at meetings that, you know, my relationship with a higher power has evolved dramatically. You know, it's like a ebb and flow type of thing where I grew up with religion and then decided since I couldn't be good, I would be good at being bad. Mm-hmm. And I used to joke around about that. But the, what what is in there, the root of that was is I thought I was bad. And so I have learned and realized that I'm not bad. I just, there's some things that happened to me that I had no control over. I was in a circumstance. I was vulnerable. Like I didn't have parents that like looked out for me all the time. Right. Like I, I was occasionally like my mom used to tell this story. She would say, oh, when you're a little baby, you say eat snails. Like, and it was like this. You're thing like cargo. <laughs> no girl like from the garden know, like in diapers like and my parents would be like haha I'd go over there and have to scoop snails out and, and then finally and she would tell this story and it made me feel bad like there was like there was something wrong with me it's like oh look at her she does this weird thing right and finally and she said it in front of my boys one time and finally I said to her I go mom where were you how is it that you allowed this to happen like I'm a baby in diapers in the backyard eating snail. Where were you? You know, and it was, and it was like, oh well, you know. She never asked. She never told that story again after I called her out on it. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know why everyone thought that was so hilarious. I was like, where were where were you? And that was a common reoccurring theme. Um, I mean, I almost drowned in a pool one time, and. I was standing right next to my mom, but she was so busy talking to somebody that she didn't notice. And my uncle, uncle came out and pulled me out by my hair. It's like, she just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I'm making her sound like a horrible person. She wasn't, she was no, like the most no, amazing person not. ever. A lot of people listening are like, she sounds like an angel. So compared to what they experienced. <laughs> compared to, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. how long have you been married? Uh, we've been married. We just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And we had been dating for three years. Um, and you met in the rooms? <laughs> yeah, I was five months sober. I do not. Oh. Well, how much time did he have? Was he? Was five, he step? had five years. Okay. 13 step in you? Yep. And so talk like, about that. I mean, I think that... Um, I mean, he didn't have a chance. Well, I, no, as, soon yeah. as, I, as soon as I like lasered on to him, <laughs> he was like a... a he was like a, a little fly that got caught in my web is what happened. No, he was, um, that girl, it was just one of those things that was meant to be. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. I remember when we first started dating, we had this moment where I looked him in the eye. I was like, oh my God, I found you. Like I had kissed a lot of frogs, <laughs> but I was like, oh my God, I found you. And he really is like my soulmate. And I hate to say that, but because, you know, I, I don't know how it's going to be perceived, but um who gives a shit yeah he and I have the same goal which is my happiness so everything works out fine (laughs) but But it's been 25 years so I'm sure 20 well we've been together we've been together 28 years yeah so I'm sure that there's been challenging times oh my god yeah it hasn't been all 
sunshine and roses. Um, but what we had from very early on was a process to resolve resentment. And that came in the form of, you know, the 12 steps, right? Uh, and accepting personal responsibility and and learning how to communicate. I did not, he was the one who taught me how to communicate. My form of communication when I got angry was to break shit and storm out, right? And um, he'd be like, no, you're not leaving. We're going to sit down and we're going to keep talking until this is resolved. And there'd be these long, awkward pauses and be like, so what's going on? How do you feel? And I'm like, I'm pissed. You know, and, and he's like, well, tell me more, tell me. And, you know, we would, we would talk about it and um, the way, and so that was one piece of it. But I think what was most important is I was learning how to resolve resentment and I would, and this is how it played out. I would call my sponsor and I'd be like, Bobby's doing this and Bobby's doing that. But he's and she'd pause and she'd be like, well, I don't sponsor him. So mm-hmm. we're going to look at your part. And mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> I thought that was so mean, but, um, she would, we would talk it out until I was able to find empathy for how my behavior affected him. Hmm. Like for instance, we went out to dinner one night and with another couple, we did, we were broke and we were saving money for a wedding and this guy was making a lot of money and he and my husband decided they'd split the bill and leave the waitress this big tip. And I freaked out. I was like, I don't remember what I said, but I remember making everybody feel uncomfortable about, I'm like, we can't afford that. Or, or like, why are you leaving her such a big tip? It's like, Bob, you can't compete with this guy. It's like, why are you trying to impress these strangers? Right? Like, I don't remember what I said. But uh, I remember making everyone feel uncomfortable, but I was so pissed. It made me feel like he didn't care about me, right? And then when it came down to it, my sponsor was like, yeah, he has every right to live his life the way he wants to. This is his life too. And I realized, oh, my con- when I'm afraid, I get controlling. And it it typically pops up around money. And it's like fear of, um, that I'm not going to get what I want or that I'm going to lose something that I have. Right. And then I got to the place where I saw how my behavior embar I embarrassed him. I embarrassed everybody. Like my girlfriend was like, Oh, do you want to go to the bathroom? We should go to the bathroom. And she removed me from this situation, bless her heart. But uh then once I was clear about my part, and I was like, Oh shit, you know that awkward moment where you realize you're the asshole? Like that was me. I was like, oh my God, this is a man I love. And I embarrassed him and I was afraid and I was controlling. So I would go to him like ready to own my part. Meanwhile, he went to his guys and worked his stuff out on his end so that when we came back together, we were both ready to own our part. And resentment is like a wedge in a relationship, right? And once we were both willing to own our part, it was like that wedge just dissipated. And all that was left was um, the love and the closeness that we felt for one another. And so that's a process that we have repeated through the years over and over and over again. And it, you know, it gets easier after a while and we still have occasionally certain things that we, um, get triggered over, but rarely our house is very, our house has always been very peaceful. We don't, we don't, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, what about, has there ever been a moment where, I mean, it's many, many years. I think one thing that often happens in relationships where both people are in recovery is that one person strays, not from the marriage, but from this path of, you know, self-improvement and recovery. Has there ever been a moment like that? Yeah. I mean, we've had periods of ebb and flow in our program and, you know, for my husband, he would, you know, have occasional bouts of depression. And so when things like that happen, I would just double down on my own program Mm -hmm. and make sure that I was taking care of my needs, that I was taking responsibility for my behavior. I would deepen my spiritual practice. I would go to more meetings and seek support and he was doing the best that he could during those times. I've We've been to counseling many times separately together. Um, there was a period of time when I was pregnant with my second son that he lost his job and we nearly lost our house. And I was very pregnant and with, you know, another child and there was nothing I could do. Right. And those were times, there were very dark times that I really had to deepen my spiritual practice and ask for help. And, you know, we came through it out, came, you know, through the other side and, and, you know, learned some really valuable lessons. And, and I feel like that's, what's really important and kind of miraculous and inspiring about recovery is during these really dark times, the most beautiful lessons come out on the other side. If you're patient and persistent and open enough and not, you know, that line in the prayer, you know, lead us not to temptation. The temptation is to choose darkness. That's the temptation or to assign meaning, a negative meaning that does not benefit you. Mm. Like, oh, all, all people are evil or I'm a bad person or um, I can't trust the world or God can't be trusted or do you know what I'm saying? That That's the temptation. The temptation is anything as uh, tied to darkness. Yeah. Or worst case scenario, catastrophizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate the need to identify where a danger might be, but to then quickly move into like, what is the contingency plan? You know, is there something I can do about it? If yes, what, if not, you know, how do I, you know, living with unresolved problems is also been a gift in recovery to learn with some live with some of that too but it's just uh, man i can't imagine having gone through a marriage without it i don't know how people do it otherwise i want to circle back to the parenting conversation so obviously you have been you were already sober by the time you had kids oh, but yeah. you work with a lot of women who have not been in recovery um you know, as, as a parent. And so you talked a lot about, um, you know, finding the balance between, um, you know, like having, having compassion for yourself as, as a mom, when you've, mm-hmm. you know, fallen short. Um, but so, I mean, talk about the process of, cause I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of people listening right now, maybe they're not alcoholics, but they've realized that, you know, that their adult children, and how they've transferred a lot of what they experienced as kids then onto their children and have a shitload of 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 guilt you know and pain surrounding that so how do you work with women you know to 
to find forgiveness for oneself and to not be eaten alive with that guilt. Yeah. I mean, so self-compassion, self-acceptance are really key pillars to this process of, mm-hmm. of recovery. And, um, I do, you know, I do work with a lot of women who get sober after they have children. And so I think it's so important to work with somebody who knows how to deconstruct, uh, different scenarios, like get specific, like, you know, when we work, when we do a four step, we get really specific about the cause of resentment, really Mm -hmm. specific about how we're affected by it. And then what our part is in it. Right. And so sometimes I will tell a woman, you know what, let the pain burn you a little bit. And the next time you are tempted to act out in a certain way, including, I call it recovery resistance, you know, like I, I suggest that they do this process of self-care next time you are about to, you know, address your self-care practice. You'll be tempted to go do something else instead remember that pain of the guilt and shame that you had when you acted in a way and affected the loved ones around you. And when you're tempted to avoid your recovery practice, which is a a daily thing, really um, remember that pain. Cause that's where uh, self-abandonment, neglect, that's what, that's the road that leads you to those behaviors. So I'm not suggesting that they forget it, I'm saying let's use it to your benefit instead of using it to beat yourself up, which leads to that negative spiral where it happens again. Mm -hmm. Let's use it as a way to, uh, it's like motivation to apply your spiritual practice. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your, just kind of your journey and cultivating a relationship with a higher power? Yeah. So I, I started, I grew up in the church and got away from it because I couldn't, I thought I kept asking God to fix me. This is a reoccurring theme. God just fix me, fix me. And then God wouldn't fix me because still human. I think my expectations were a little, <laughs> I was a little confused about what the end result. Oh, works. Like. <laughs> yeah. I was a little confused. Um, so I abandoned God cause I was still an asshole and and no matter how hard I tried, I was still behaving badly. Um, but then when I got desperate in the, you know, bottoming out process, it was like, Oh God, please help me. And then that kind of was the journey back. And then there, you know, going to the program, you know, there's all these prayers and, and then I had a sponsor was like, you know, step two, like very early on in the process, step two is like, you get to redefine what this word means. Mm -hmm. Like the word God is just a symbol, right? And it's almost as if over the years, it was like layers of glass were laid over this symbol. And if you've ever seen an image underneath many layers of glass, it's distorted. Like you can't really see the image. That's what my experience of God was like. It was distorted by layers of misunderstanding and misperception, right? And so going through the process of recovery, I was encouraged to throw it all out and and start from scratch. And for me, it was like, God is the energy of love. It's in nature, like um, compassionate, forgiving. It was not, it was, there was a whole list of what God was not, right? Like I don't identify a higher being with gender. So the whole 
sky daddy thing doesn't really work for me. Man in the sky and the he and like, I was offended by that. And like a lot of the literature, it's all Christian where it's like, God is he. And that never made sense to me. So I, I need something that, but I can identify with the energy of love and master coordinator, uh, master planner, omnipresent, omnipotent, like powerful and loves me right? God is law, like the laws of the universe, like law of attraction, karma, gravity, let's say, um, but also a, a presence of love that cares about me personally. And, and so that's, that's where I started. And because of my childhood experiences, I have a very hard time trusting anything. Like I keep forgetting that there, I have access to power, even if it's through other people. And so the way it works for me is God works in my life through people and I can, that's when I can feel it. It was so interesting. I was doing this, I've been doing this uh, 12 step workshop with these ladies and we were on step two and we were talking about our concept of a higher power and what it means. And one of the exercises was how do you want God to show up in your life? Mm. And it was like, well, if my definition is love, if it's like universal, like scientific energy, you know, love is definitely a vibe, shall we say, um, then that means that whenever I recognize love in my life, that is God working in my life. That's a tangible. And then the conversation was about this lady was confused about, well, how do I know if I'm doing God's will or if I'm doing my will? Like she get, was all get, we get twisted up tight around what actions am I supposed to be taking? Like I'm a workaholic. I, I like to take a lot. I love to overwhelm my problems with action. Um, however, my barometer for deciding whether I am within God's will for me is after my action is the end result peaceful. Mm. Like I've had to eliminate some friends from my life and they were hard and painful, but the end result was peaceful. I felt peaceful. So in the particular circumstances I was in, it was the right decision for me because I need peace in my life. I choose peace over drama today. We'll have Does to have you sense? back on. Absolutely. And I'll have to have you back on to talk about that because people can relate to that, you know? It's yeah. It's hard to... um to end relationships that are no longer serving us, especially if they're relationships that have, that we've had for a while. Yeah. And this one was like a 10 year relationship where we just got to this place where like, I can't do this anymore. Like boundaries are a funny thing. Like we don't know where they are sometimes until we cross them. And also we're growing and evolving. So our boundaries change. So through no fault of whatever, it was like, I just recognize that this is no longer serving me. And after making the decision, I felt peaceful. Mm-hmm. My life has been peaceful. <laughs> H- hard to do, but. <laughs> um, okay. So tell everyone about all the shit you got going on. <laughs> well, I have a private women's group that's free. The one day at a time private women's group on Facebook. Um, I just, it's a place for me to put all the resources um, I have sober life school. If people are interested in doing one-on-one coaching, that's where I, that includes hypnosis. I do that. And, um, I used to do a self-esteem class pretty regularly. Then my mother passed away. And then after 
this, I just couldn't do anything for like a year. So, so, um, so you're, for that. the sober coaching, do you work with people that are haven't gotten sober yet and people who are sober? How does that work? I do. It just depends on the person. There's the type of person I cannot, that I do not work well with is somebody who is sort of committed to the victim mentality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I typically work with people who have an overactive sense of responsibility, like the workaholics, the overachievers, the, you know, I deal with a lot of executives that are because it's easier to back off of responsibility than it is to get somebody to accept responsibility. Mm. The victim mentality is very powerful and difficult Mm -hmm. to break. Mm -hmm. It can be done. I had a victim mentality in the beginning, but as soon as I got some information about how to get at, like what it was and how, once I identified it, I quickly wanted out. So accepting personal responsibility was my highest priority in recovery. So those are the women I tend to attract. Mm -hmm. And then you have your podcast. Yeah. I do the podcast, the one day at a time podcast. Love Maybe. it. You're going yeah, to be a guest. I'm so excited. So, well, this has been amazing. I'll put all of your shit in the show notes. Thank and you. We'll be talking to you soon. All right, my dear. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you. As always, I know you did. As always, if we didn't, if you didn't get anything, seek additional help. <laughs> uh, so I'm here for my Tiffany, who's a member of the shit, shit, Johnny John. Uh, she has this, a mastermind, this group coaching thing, um, that she invited me to. And so I'm sitting in this like crazy, mansion oh i forgot to say check out uh show notes for all of arlena's shit and thank you very very much for that um so yeah that's what's what's going on here folks um what about y'all you know if you guys ever have um you know some of you guys already do this but if you have you know profound revelations like when you listen to episodes and you want to reach out to me please do because that can be kind of a fun thing to do where I, I read uh, what people are getting out of the episodes or what the aha moments were, were for them. Um, hmm. I don't think I got anything else, guys. So damn the join Patreon. Give me a damn review. Um, and I'll see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super well, super fun, super excited. Be out of here. It's going to be a good day. I promise.